Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. It's a lot of people here. Um, some nervous, but. Uh, well, Phil called me yesterday morning and asked him if he had anything for me to, that he wanted me to read or start with, and he said to, if anything of my own, to go ahead and talk about it, otherwise to read Ezekiel 38, and so I kind of skimmed over that, and I decided to leave that one to uh, the professionals. Um, but I think uh, today our minds are all kind of somewhat going to the same place. If you're here for opening, uh, Micah talked about it. But this has been a week that's kind of been a little shocking, actually. And as our government has decided that people don't have the right to kill somebody else. And so I was thinking about that, and that's exciting. Um, in the long run, it doesn't change a lot necessarily, depending on the state uh, that you live in. Um, but it, I think it, it does change the fact that you are not granted the right to take the life of another person. And that's exciting. It's very, very important. But I was thinking about us um, as a church and people of God and what our obligation is. Because I re the reality of it is, is that the, it's not a complete victory. And yet the question is, what is a complete victory? And so... I'm going to read a couple verses here from Romans 12, and these verses, at least from my background, were taken out of context quite a bit, and um, unfortunately, I think in this uh, situation, it's going to be taken out of context also just a little bit, but I think that this best sets down what our obligation is as a church, and so start with... Um, Verse 1 in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the other things that has been uh, circulating around on Facebook, Ashton, I'm sorry, you think you shared something and I talked to you so I get the context of where you were going with that. But um, there's a couple other cases that are big and well known and were a big deal and a major victory for the people that they were passed for. And one of them, uh, Ober Obergfell versus Hodges, I think is what it was in 2015. And People are losing their minds over that, and now the fact that this could possibly, with, under the same precedent, be overturned as well. And that one um, allows what God calls an abomination. And I just wonder, as a church, are we... It's exciting that these things are being looked at, but our obligation as abortion is banned, that we need to realize that there are people that are hurting there's people that don't know any better maybe there's people that are feel like that this is their only option and so I feel like with that that we need to step up and give other options and to be the church and to teach and show the world 
what God is actually wanting us to do. We cannot, God is not calling us to ban a marriage that is against what the Bible teaches. God is not calling us to ban what is obviously wrong in murdering another person. But what God is calling us to do is to be a light in the world and to transform and renew the minds. And that's the message of the gospel. Um, Jesus uh, says in John 10, uh, verse 10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And so I just hope that and pray that as a church or as the people of God that our goal and our desire is changing lives and not forcing somebody to have a ideal that we share because of what we have but our mission and our um, passion is helping those that don't have an alternative and showing what the actual gospel of a transformed heart and a mind is. Um, I think with that if we have any prayer requests Butch I might ask you to pray for us if you don't mind so do we have any prayer requests? Okay, the VBS group headed to Torreon. I think they're still traveling today, maybe. All right, Bush, go ahead.
Well, amen. It's been quite a week, hasn't it? We've seen things happen in this country that we've been looking for for 49 years. And there is a degree of rejoicing the thought that even one child could be saved. One mother could be kept from committing that sin. It's probably worth more than anything we can comprehend. And so we're thankful. But i got to tell you what I'm really thankful for this morning. It's not that a government finally did something that seems right. It's that the tomb is empty. Hallelujah. Amen. We serve a risen Christ. Welcome to each one that's here. Visitors, everyone. We pray that you have come this morning with a spirit to worship. You might turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 38. That's where we're going to be. However, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in introduction here this morning before we actually begin there. The last time I talked, and I talked on Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, and I made a statement at the beginning of that message, and it went something like this. I don't know if I had an exact order, but there's four things that's coming towards the end. It's Ezekiel's War, the Tribulation, the Millennium, and Armageddon. And some people, I, I got some interaction that said, well, was that the chronological order? And I said, I don't know. I didn't mean that to be a chronological order because I don't know what it is. And I'll just give you an example. One of the examples right now is that uh, Ezekiel's War, which is what we're going to be looking at, that's Ezekiel 38, and we're going to be looking at that. Uh, a lot of people say this is actually Third World War, and it's a prelude before the Millennium, the Tribulation, and Armageddon. There are others that say that Ezekiel's war is the last half of the tribulation when the devil or the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel and God moves in and that is when they finally repent, the last half of the tribulation. And this is an explanation of that time period. I, I can understand both thinkings. All I know is the one that does know is the Lord and we're just going to leave it there this morning. You're going to hear me say a, a number of times, um, I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm going to share with you what I've learned. So here we are. We're in a prophecy. And we don't have a lot of prophecy teaching. And I don't consider myself a prophecy guru at all. I'm pretty ordinary. Average intelligence, etc., etc. But there's five reasons I've written down to study prophecy. The first one is, and I've used this before, is in 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says, He that prophesieth speaketh unto men unto edification, exhortation, and comfort. So edification means we're going to be fed. We're going to learn something about the Lord. We're going to learn something about our lives. We're going to learn something about the past. We're going to learn about the future. God is going to promise to speak to us. Then it says exhortation. He's going to tell us how to apply it to our life and how to live. So in other words, as we study prophecy, we ought to get lessons every day that we are studying and listen to them about how we should conduct our lives. And finally, it says we will receive comfort. Why comfort? What does prophecy have to do with comfort? If we understand God's, even in a small way, understand God's purpose and His goal for the human family, and we understand what He's doing, then we have a purpose in life and we know how we fit and what our goals are and how to live and we can go through the fire in His name. And so there's actually 
some commentators have said there's up to 30% of the scripture is prophetic. So it must be important to God. So we're just going to look at one little tiny section this morning. That's the first reason. Um, the next reason is in Matthew 13, uh, I'm not going to take the time to read it. Jesus is talking and he said, The prophets and the righteous men of old have longed to see what you see and hear what you hear, and they have not been able to. So he was telling the people that even his, his men in the past, those old prophets, those kings, those great leaders, they desired to know about the Messiah. They desired to know about the plan of God. And they didn't have the full picture. And then Peter, in his, in his first chapter, he not only includes the prophets in that list, he includes the angels. Do you know that all of God's people from the beginning of time to now want to know what God is going to do because He's their God? And because they love Him. And even the angels would like to know what God's going to do. Because we have a little tiny, tiny glimpse this morning, we are a privileged people. Hallelujah. And the amazing thing is, if this was to happen 20 years later, 200 years later, whatever God's timetable is, I think they're going to, if they know the Lord, they're going to understand things that you and I don't. And so here we are this morning, we'll do the best we can. Well, so I was... I, Thinking about this, and you know, you know, Phil, who do you think you are to talk about? I mean, when a man stands behind this pulpit and he opens the Word of God, I want him to speak with the authority of the Word. I want it to be clear and powerful. And you're going to stand up here today, and you're going to say well, those things. I don't really know what the, I'm not sure, but this is kind of what I think. That don't sound very convincing. And so I was wrestling with internally. I was wrestling with the Lord, quite frankly. And this is the thought that came to me, and I trust it's from the Spirit. And it went something like this. What's the most, um, most popular verse in all the Scripture? Well, it's John 3.16. Well, Phil, have you ever preached on 3.16? Yeah. You ever heard anybody preach on 3.16? Yeah. A lot of times. So, do you think you know all there is to know about that one simple verse? Not even close. And so it came to me, and I think he was trying to tell me, if you are going to wait until you think you know everything there is, even about one verse, you're never going to preach again. So this morning, our prayer is that the Spirit of God will be with us to bless us in a way that edifies us, that exhorts us, and brings us comfort. One more thing before we get in the text. <clears throat> It seems like there is a continual cry, at least in the political world, but maybe in the hearts of all men, for someone to raise up that is righteous and just and wise that will lead the country in a way that would bless everybody. And it doesn't happen. They all fall short. Doesn't seem right, does it? Well, what does justice look like? And today I'm going to suggest to you the portion of Scripture we're going to look at is going to be, at least in part, some of the presentation of the holiness and the justice of God. I know the statement out there today goes like something like this. Love is love. No, it's not. 
Love is defined by the God that made love, and we're going to look at his justice, his holiness, and how he defines it. Man does not define those things, even though they try to. Okay, let's get into the message. There's something I think we need to understand before we even look at the first verse. In Genesis 17, the Lord came to Abraham, and he told Abraham, there are three things that I'm going to do. Number one, I'm going to bring the land back to Israel. I'm going to establish the nation. Number two, I'm going to bless the people of that nation, the Jewish people. And number three, I'm going to be their God. And that is the Abrahamic covenant in a, in a nutshell. And so when we looked at Ezekiel 35 and 36, we brought all the people, all the land, all the, uh, when he brought the land back into, uh, as a nation in uh, 1948, it's interesting because when Mark Twain went there in the 1800s, and he went to the land of Palestine, it wasn't Israel yet, he said it was so barren and so lost that even, there wasn't even any cactus there. He said the cactus didn't even live in the, in the Palestinian desert. That's how destitute it was. And yet today, I noticed yesterday at where we were, I ate a bunch of those little cherry tomatoes. You know where the development of the cherry tomato has really been? It's come out of Israel. Israel has become that desert nothing, and God has blessed that land. That's the first part of the Abrahamic covenant. There is a land of Israel, and he has blessed it beyond what we can comprehend. Then it says, in Ezekiel 37, the, the Valley of Dry Bones, where all of the people are dead, and that's Israel. They are gone. They're destitute. They have left the land. They're scattered all over the world. They speak different languages. They eat different foods. They're not the same. And God says, I'm going to bring the people back. That's the second step of the Abrahamic covenant. But the third step is what we're going to look at today. And that step is Israel's God is going to work. And we're going to see this morning when we look at this chapter how God, Israel's God, works not only with Israel but the enemies of Israel. And it is all part of his justice, it's all part of his holiness, and it's according to his plan. So let's begin. Ezekiel 1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, that's Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, I want to stop there. I had never seen this before? Do you know that the term son of man is a term of endearment? We say sometimes we're children of the king or we're, we're children of the Lord. We belong to him and all of that. But Jesus was all man and all God. And he created mankind. He created them in his image and for his glory. And so when he looks at this believer, in this case Ezekiel, he looks at him, he says the most wonderful thing that God can say to a man. He said, you are a son of man. You are fulfilling what I created you for. You are wonderful because you are mine and you belong to my family. And I want to say to you this morning, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, you are a son of man. And I think the Lord is pleased to reach out and call to us and to teach us and to love us. What a beautiful statement. Son of man. I forget how many times it's in Ezekiel 60 or something. I forget. A whole bunch of them. Okay, let's read on. 
Son of man, set thy face against Gog. We're going to be looking at both area and people and thinkings and workings of God and so forth this morning. But the word Gog here literally means a chief, a prince, a high or supreme one, a person. It is generally referred that this is either the Antichrist or this is someone who is functioning under the spirit of an Antichrist. We're going to see that as we go on. Son of man, set thy face against Gog. The land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Magog is going to be, an, and we can go ahead and put the picture up. Thank you. Jeff has done a lot of work for me, and he needs more credit than he's going to get. Um, <clears throat> Magog is probably the whole land of, of Russia, and I, I'm just going to tell you right up front. I would encourage any of you and all of you to go online and look up the definition of where these places are. There are, it'll blow your mind. I personally think this is the land of Russia and you're gonna see why before I'm done, but I'm not stuck in the mud with it. There are a lot of interpretations of these places. Some of them they are united on, others they are not. Um, the more popular view is in the later years is the land of Russia is Magog. And then he says, um, the chief prince of Meshech, and I believe that is Moscow. You can see Moscow, oops, yep, here we go. Right there. That is it, that's Moscow. And I'm not taking the time to explain all these. We do not have time. And Tubal, then it says Tubal. Um, Tubal is Syria. Um, lower it down there. Yeah, off to the down. No, the other way. <laughs> okay, see the East Siberian Sea? Tubal is somewhere in Siberia. It's clear out in the middle of nowhere. So he's talking about this whole area, it seems to me, that is going to come against Israel. And it's interesting to watch because we're seeing an attitude with this nation under Putin. It's interesting. Um, there are some people that have said that Putin is the Antichrist. I, I'm not ready to go there at all. But he is probably of that spirit that's controlling him. And so this, this whole area... And we see the attitude that is in that government. That's the reason they've taken Crimea. It's the reason they've moved into Ukraine. They are very, very aggressive. And I want to say one thing before we go any farther here this morning. Whatever attitude, nature, spirit we have, it will never change unless the Spirit of God change us. Do you, do you understand that? We can look at we can look at Putin, we can look at Russia, we can look at all these things and say, oh boy, they're bad, bad, bad. I want to tell you something, brother and sister, unless the Spirit of God get a hold of us, we don't change either. And I think there's a fundamental lesson that's here. We look at that and we understand. Remember, I promised you this morning I want it to be everyday lessons that come out of this, and that's one of the first ones I want to say to you. So let's read on. Um, and say, thus saith the Lord, third verse, Lord God, behold, I'm against thee, O Gog, the chief of the prince of Meshach and Tubal. 
And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws and bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So there's going to be a mighty, mighty force that comes. And did you notice? Did you notice? You didn't. Unless you got absolutely amazing eyes. Here's Israel. You can't even see it. And look at, look at Russia. And we're going to see all these nations around it. This little old tiny, and he wants it. Doesn't even make sense. Why in the world would he go after that little tiny area? Let's hang on. So let's read on here. Fifth verse. Persia. And this is one that is pretty universally accepted. Persia is Iran. Right here. You notice um, it is to the east and somewhat to the north of Israel. And the amazing the thing I want to tell you today is as we go through this list of countries that are allied with Gog, they are the same countries that are aligning today. That's what makes this interesting. It makes it look like that we possibly could be very well at the end. I don't know. Remember I said I'd tell you, I don't know. <laughs> but this is, these same nations are coming together and they are listed in the scripture. I heard a, heard a um, Jewish converted man, converted man, an amazing story. And he had been in uh, Israeli intelligence. I think he still has connections there. He seems to know what's going on, everything militarily and spiritually and everything. He's a believer. And this is what he said. He said, I've spent my whole life studying science and history. And he said, there is no book that is 100% accurate except God's Word. And I just found that encouraging to come from him. And so what we're looking at this morning, we may misinterpret it, but the Word isn't wrong. It's right. The second one is Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Can I see it? Right here. Ethiopia. And uh, some would say Sudan, which is right next to it, is part of this, this scripture in the old days. So we see we not only have Israel to the north, to the east, and now we're in the south. And these are all nations that are aligned with Gog and they're going to come together against Israel. And the next one is um, Libya. And Libya, by the way, Ethiopia, if you look on an old map, it's called Cush. Libya, if you look on an old map, is called Put, P-U-T. Libya and Algeria are probably the area here that Put was. And these, so this is the west. So now you can look at this and you see this is a complete surrounding of Israel who is right here. And they got them completely surrounded and they got these massive, massive, massive armies. There's one thing, and maybe some of you can tell me, that I'm going to go through this today, both the uh, allies that are allied with Israel and those that are, we're talking about the ones that are against them right now. Egypt is never mentioned in this passage, and I, I don't know what to do with that. Egypt's a very influential, influential, powerful country. Anyway. And then it says, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands. 
Well, um, I need to find Germany. There it is. Germany's over here. If you read any of the more modern interpretations of this, of Gomer, especially if they are influenced by the Jewish people, they will say almost universally that Gomer is Germany. It's interesting, and we can understand that after World War II, right? That would make sense. I remember I listened to one uh, converted rabbi, and he was absolutely positive that Gomer was Germany. However, because of the way it's worded, and a lot, a lot of the older people will tell you that actually Gomer is Turkey. So, and then it says Togomara, which is apparently Turkey. Uh, let's see, eighth verse. And after many days thou shalt be visited, in the latter days thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, that's, that's the Jewish people, and is gathered out of many people, the Jewish people, against the mountains of Israel, which have, had been always waste, now they're productive, and it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. They shall ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud over the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. So he's talking about this consortium of all these countries that are going to come against Israel. And it's interesting, he says he's going to come like a cloud. And remember I told you that some things are really hard to understand or interpret. One thinking is that modern warfare is going to be destroyed. It's going to be over it. So this is literal. They're going to come with huge bands of people and they're going to be like they fought in the old days. Other people say, no, that cloud is talking about an air warfare. They're going to come in just in mass in the air with planes and helicopters and whatever, rockets. I don't know really what it, how to interpret that. Let's see. Thus says the Lord, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. They're going to think this consortium of evil nations against Israel, they're going to think that they're in control and they know what's done. But we've already read that God's going to put a hook in their mouth. God's doing this. Remember this passage deals with God. It really is not about all these nations. It is the working of God to bring justice to his chosen people. Eleventh verse, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest. They dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. To take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. Remember that place was totally desolate and now it's super productive. The whole world's blessed. And this Gog and his allies are saying, I want that. And upon the mountain that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Now I want to, to go to this 13th verse. This is an important verse to me. First of all, it says Sheba and Dedan. Sheba and Dedan is almost universally agreed that it's this area of Saudi Arabia. Uh, United Arab uh, Emirates and Bahrain, which is right there, United Arab, right here, Saudi Arabia. You know what's happened in the last 10, 15 years? Those nations have signed 
peace treaties and contracts with the nation of Israel. And today you can fly from Jerusalem to Dubai. They have trade agreements, they have military agreements, they have intelligence agreements. And these nations, even though they are Muslim, are not aligned with the others. What is interesting is, even my dad in his, age, in his day never saw this. This has just happened. That any of the Muslim countries would align with Israel. And so here it is, we're seeing it right now. This is what's happening now. This is just amazing to me. We're seeing a fulfillment of scriptures that we can look at and see and say, you know what? God's word is true. But that's maybe not the whole thing here in this 13th verse. <laughs> you ever wonder where the United States is? I mean, here, here, is a, here is a nation that was declared to be under the Lord. It was founded on, on Judeo-Christian principles. It fought two world wars, and then when it was over, it rebuilt the countries. It, it tore up and it's blessed people for 200 years. Can you find it in scripture? A lot of people would say no. And I'm not 100% sure, but I think what we're about to read tells us that maybe there's a yes. Let's read on. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish. And the debate becomes, who is Tarshish? The oldest manuscripts will tell you that Tarshish is Spain and that perhaps there is even an area on the edge of Spain that uh, this, a town was named this. And then it goes on and it says all the young lions thereof. And a lot of the old manuscripts would say it's Spain and it's the, it's the pirates of the, of the seas. That's who this is. Well, it doesn't quite make sense to me, but that's, that is, if you read the older manuscripts, you'll read that universally. But there's something here I want you to notice. With all the young lions thereof. Jeff? Anyone know what that is? Anybody recognize that? That is the emblem of the British Empire. And the British Empire, the statement was that the sun never sets on England. It never sets on the British Empire. Because they controlled so many countries, and I maybe should have asked Jeff to find that, but there, if you look at how many countries Britain controlled at one time, it is astounding. But this is what it said. Now, just go back to that picture, Jeff. What is that? What's that a picture of? A lion. The emblem of the British Empire was a lion. And when I read this scripture, it says, and all the young lions. Do you know the United States is considered a young country? We don't have the history that Europe does. We don't have the history that Asia does. We're considered young. And I find it interesting that all the young lions, and I, personally, this is just the way I read it, and you have a, a right to disagree with me. I want you to understand that. But it seems to me like it's Canada, United States, Australia, actually uh, 
Israel, the land of Palestine, was ruled by, by Britain also. And so it seems to me like when it says all the young lions, this is referring to the Western nations that are sympathetic even today in our present situation with Israel. Okay. Now, I want you to notice what else it says. Um, with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, they're going to say unto Gog, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take great spoil? You know what's going to happen? When Gog starts to move down, there's going to be a coalition of Western nations, the way I would see it, and they're going to say to Gog, naughty, 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 you mustn't do that, don't do that, and they're not going to do anything. And remember I said we will not change unless the Spirit of God get a hold of us. Have you noticed the attitude that has suddenly changed in the United States towards foreign things? And I'm not, I'm not pro-war, don't misunderstand me. But I think it is really, really interesting to watch our nation. As soon as Russia moved in on Ukraine, the United States, oh, no, no, don't do that. We, we, we're thinking about some sanctions. And all of a sudden, we have a lack of conviction, a lack of sacrifice. It's interesting. And God says, there's going to be all these nations, and they're going to be friends with Israel, and they're going to say, hey, they're our friends. In fact, I just, I just heard an Israeli man said the greatest, the greatest friend that Israel has ever had is the United States of America. And apparently, when this happens, they're going to say, what are you doing? You going down there to take that stuff? Don't, don't, don't do that. That's, that's bad. I don't want to do anything. Okay. Therefore, 14th verse, Son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, Thus saith the Lord God, In that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And thou shalt come down from thy north out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, and all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And the margin in my King James Version says, instead of north parts, it says far north, and most translations will tell you that. It will call it the far north. Jeff, good. Let's bring... Yeah. All right. Now, when the word talks about a direction or a location of a nation or peoples or anything else, it is almost always speaking from Jerusalem. That is God's city. Read Psalms 137. It is God's place. That's where he's going to rule and reign in the millennium. And so when he talks about a direction, he's talking about a direction from Jerusalem. And so what we see here, this is amazing. And he says the far north, and I'm going to show you that in a minute. But here is Jerusalem. Let's just go straight north, about as far as we can go Guess what we hit? Moscow. Let me show you. This is amazing. I know you can't really see it, and you're welcome to come up and look later. Huh. Let me get oriented here. Okay. But Russia is clear at the top. 
You can't go any farther than Russia. And Moscow is absolutely straight north of Jerusalem. And so when he's talking about the nation and the cities of the far north, this is one of the reasons I think the accurate interpretation is Israel. Could be wrong. I understand that. You do. But that's, that's what I see this morning. Well, what are the lessons? I don't know. There's probably it'd be, if we had the time, it'd be interesting to have each one of you stand and share what, what you've learned this morning. Because I would suspect that the Spirit has been working a lot of places. One of the things that really, really struck me when I read this, and we had it this morning in our Sunday school class. Gog never had enough. He, he, had, he had all that land, and he had all these allies. He has everything possible. And he wants that little tiny sliver of land called Israel. And he went down there to take what was there because he could. What for? There's something, Gog represents a spirit that unless the Lord change our minds, we are Gog. We want something more. We want what something else has. We are not satisfied. We want prestige. We want pleasure. We want money. We want whatever it is. And we'll do whatever it takes to get it. That is the spirit of Gog. And we can look at this and say, oh, he's terrible. Unless Jesus Christ changed my life from the inside out, I am the same. We either serve God, G-O-G, or we serve God, capital G-O-D. One or the other. What a marvelous thing that God has called us. And we can be sons of men. The second lesson, I get out of this, we, we could read on, I, I, I guess I'm not going to take the time, probably should. Let's read a little bit. Um, let's go on to the end of this chapter. And God says he's going to turn on him, he's going to be angry in his face and so forth. And 19th verse, he says, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. This shaking is usually interpreted as a massive earthquake. So that, listen, look at this. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the heaven and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep upon the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. I had an uncle that was on the way to Anchorage when the big Anchorage earthquake hit. He said he thought he was having an earthquake. He said, Phil, I, I tried to get my car off the road as quick as I could. And I stepped out, and the road was moving. He said it was rolling like waves, and he said I fell flat to the ground. That's an earthquake. Did you know that in the midst of this earthquake, there is massive rain? I have never seen rain with fire, and yet it says fire and brimstone comes with it. I can't imagine. 
This is part of the justice and holiness of God. And what I want to say, the second point that I wanted to say to you is God, God's love never compromises his justice or his holiness. Never. It may not look like love to us, but it is. God has full authority and full right. Let's, let's read on this 21st verse. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains. He's talking about Gog and his, and his following. And every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him. And overflowing rain and great hailstones and fire and brimstone. And I will magnify myself and sanctify myself. And I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. There's something that's happening in our world. And I'd like to tell you that it hasn't penetrated any of our families or any of our churches, but it has. It's the work of the devil. And it's simply confusion. How many times have you said or heard people say, I wish I knew what the truth was? We send a committee into a congregation to fix something. We change a law in the government. I don't know. You know what the fruit of that confusion is? It's because they don't know the Lord and the fruit of that, of that confusion is exactly what happens here. God confuses them and they turn against themselves. And we should not be surprised when our world turns against itself and does the craziest, dumbest things. Why in the world would anything with any mindset at all kill their own babies? I'll tell you why. Because they don't know the Lord. The greatest thing that can happen to you and I is that we know the Lord. Nothing else. The other thing that's impressive here, the third thing I've written down as lessons, is that I am so thankful God keeps his side of the covenant. Remember he made that covenant with Abraham we talked about in the beginning. Israel messed it up. Repeatedly. Still are. God hadn't messed it up. My Lord is faithful. If you want to see something that's honest and integrity and just and holy, look to Jesus and stay there. Dwell there. Meditate on him. There is no other solution. So he will not compromise his holiness. And he keeps his side of the covenant. And not only that, but he continues to pursue. Is there someone here this morning? And really inside, what, what you're really tore up about is that you have a friend, a relative, a child. And they have walked away from the Lord. And you're afraid. We've all been there. It's scary. Do you know what's marvelous about a covenant-keeping God? He continues to pursue. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you do not quit on people like us. Thank you. Well, number four. 
How many of you like to read thriller novels? Yeah, a few honest hands here. <laughs> we just read the neatest thriller you will ever read, and every word of it's true. It is just amazing. It will. And no other, no other thriller will do what this one does. You know what this one will do? It will edify, it will exhort, and it will comfort. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the word. Well, there's one more thing, I guess. Number five. Remember, I started out and I said, I, I don't know time chronologically where Israel or Ezekiel 38 is. But if it is at the front of the other three that we talked about, if it is separate, maybe a World War III or I don't know. Did you notice when we got to the end of the chapter, it does not say that Israel repents? I think I said that last week, that they repented after that. It does not say that. I was wrong. And this is, this is what I see. After God, and he's still keeping his covenant, he's still pursuing, he's still doing his part, and he brings those people back, and he sets their land up, and he defeats their enemies, and, the whole, and they still don't repent. How can that be? How can that be? And then I sit there and I'm thinking, how many times does the Lord speak to my heart? I want to pass it off. I want to justify it. I'm thankful that my Lord is a pursuing, covenant-keeping God. There's great comfort in that. This ought to change us, I think. And so one of the reasons I say that is, if that's right, and Ezekiel 38 is first, then the Jewish people do not fully repent until midway through that tribulation, halfway through the seven-year tribulation, and um, the devil turns on them and breaks it. They've been dependent, they've been dependent on the Antichrist and, and the covenant they have with him to protect them. And halfway through that tribulation, he breaks that covenant, and suddenly Israel has nobody, and they are in trouble. And God moves in again. And after that, they repent and cry out, my Lord and my God. So, I don't know if that is accurate or not because of the chronological. But aren't you thankful this morning that every, every sin you've ever committed, every ungodly thought you've ever had, Lord, thank you for pursuing. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for keeping your side of the covenant. Thank you for edifying me. Thank you for exhorting me. Thank you for comforting me. And God keeps the covenant. He brings the, nation, the land back. He brings the people back. And he's still their God. And he's our God too. Israeli Messiah is our Lord and Savior. Hallelujah.
Let's stand as we sing number 47.